You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, my job today is to convince you to abandon all hope. And you may say, Ben, that sounds like the exact opposite of what a preacher should do. Uh, Are you sure you've chosen the right profession? Well, we can debate my life choices later. But I still believe my task today is to extol for you the virtues of despair. I want you to experience the blessing of hopelessness. That's the idea today. I want to champion the abandoning of your optimism, and I want to convince you to quit. All right? Uh, why? Well, we're in this series, wrapping up a series called Call on Heaven, where we've been talking about what does it truly mean to be spiritual people? Not just say, I want to be spiritual, but but really walk with the Spirit of God. Be godly people because we really know God and talk to God. What would it look like to be a praying people, a church that calls on heaven? And I could give you all the benefits of prayer, the stats, which there are many. It reduces stress and improves sweet sleep quality and you'll live longer and things like that. But we've been looking at, but what will really actually motivate you to do it, to be a people who call on heaven. And when we began the series, we talked about desperation. We talked about desperation. When we sense a need for change, then it'll open up the possibility for us of becoming a praying people when we're desperate. And then we talked about desire, where desperation might lead us to pray to God. It's a desire to linger in his presence that'll cause us to truly be a praying people, that that as you begin to read God's word, to linger in his presence, to talk to him, you might discover what King David did, where he says, hey, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasure is forevermore. My soul's desire is in you. That desperation may lead us into the throne room, but desire causes us to linger with the king. And then we talked about direction. Let's say we do become a praying people. Where is ultimately this going? What are we hoping for? And what we talked about last week was the repeated call in the New Testament for us to pray that God's word and the message of the grace of God through Jesus Christ would not stay locked up in the church like some secret little club, but it would extend out to the whole world that every man, woman, and child might know the love of God made available to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ. That's the direction that the glory of God would cover the world like water covers the sea. And now today, what's going to determine whether we engage in this entire endeavor? I would say destruction. Something has to die for this kind of life to really live. And so I don't know if we have a title yet for this sermon, but a potential title is Kill Hope. (laughs) Let me explain. Uh, there's a book uh, called Deep Survival written by Lawrence Gonzalez, and he tells the story of 17-year-old Julianne Kopecki. Uh, she was flying with her mother and 90 other passengers on Christmas Eve in 1971 when lightning struck their airplane, and it caused massive structural failure. And young Julianne suddenly found herself outside, still strapped to a chair, But looking down past the little high heels she was wearing along with her confirmation dress, down at the Peruvian jungle, and she remembers thinking the trees looked like cauliflower before she blacked out. When she woke up, she was on the jungle floor, still strapped to her chair, and she realized all she had was cuts and bruises and 
a broken collarbone. And so she sat there for a day and waited. But it began to dawn on her, I am under this jungle canopy. Nobody can see me. I can't stay here. And so she began to move. And she had no survival training. She had no resources. She just had the remembrance of something her dad said to her. If you're lost, find water. Water leads to people. And so she found a, a stream, led to a river, began to walk along it for 11 days. And she came upon a hunting cabin where there were some hunters there that rescued her. Now, I've told you that story before. Church used it to illustrate something. But what I didn't tell you last time was that she was not the only person who survived the crash. That 11 other adults also survived in a piece of the aircraft that landed together in another place in the jungle. And they decided, you know what? We've got some limited resources in the remains of the aircraft here. We are going to sit and we are going to wait for rescue to come. And those 11 days where Julianne marched along the river and ultimately found life, they chose in those 11 days to sit and do nothing, and all of them died. Now, it's interesting, why? Why did a community of people who were better resourced die when a teenage girl with no resources lived? You'll have to read Lawrence Gonzalez's book because he entertains the possibilities of that throughout the rest of it. But I want to give you one possible thing that's very clear is that that community of people committed to a strategy. Sit and we'll be saved. And they put their hope in something that failed. But what young Julianne did was she had the sit strategy until she realized this ain't going to work. This will not get me to my desired outcome. And so she had to kill her hope in this strategy to open up the possibility of a better one. Do you see it? Uh, you have to kill certain ways of living if you want to open yourself up to better ones. Uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale taught us this. Many of you know uh, the famous quotes from him and Jim Collins, good to gate, great. Uh, you live in DC, I'm sure you've heard it many times. But for the three of you who haven't, Admiral Jim Stockdale, uh, was the highest-ranking United States military uh, officer uh, that was a prisoner of war uh, in Vietnam. And he was tortured over 20 times in his eight-year imprisonment. Uh, when Jim Collins interviewed him, uh, he asked him, you were in that horrific environment, how did you endure? And what Admiral Stockdale told him was, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would make it out, but also I would prevail in the end and turn that experience into the defining event of my life, which in rest retrospect, I would not trade. In a sense, he had hope. Hope is, is confidence in, in a good outcome. So then Jim Collins asked him, well, then who didn't make it out? And without hesitation, Admiral Stockdale said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. And Jim said, well, I don't understand. I'm completely confused, given what you just told me about you had hope, but optimistic people died. What do you mean? And he said, the optimists were those who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. And he says, after a long pause, he turned to me and said, this is an important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, 
with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may might be. I'm not encouraging you to abandon all hope and a desired outcome. I'm challenging you to, abandon, uh, to evaluate your current strategy of where you're going to find life. And for some of us, if we're really going to seek life, meaning, purpose, satisfaction in God, then we have to lose some hope in our current strategy because it's not going to get you where you want. There are so many passages I could quote. I want to quote one from Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, I love it. In the ESV, they put a title over it. You know, the titles aren't inspired. They just do it to help you keep track. And the title of this one is, Do Not Go Down to Egypt. That could be a great title for a sermon. Uh, may hurt some Egyptians' feelings, but I thought it was kind of funny. So the idea uh, is uh, this was in a day where the vastly militarily superior nation of Assyria was bearing down on the people who were in Jerusalem. And the king Hezekiah understood we cannot win against their superior forces. They are devastating every nation in their way. And so in the midst of that, as they see calamity coming their way, a significant contingent within Jerusalem is saying, we got to go get a deal with Egypt. We need rescue. We need salvation. We need, we, we need the comfort of knowing we're going to make it. We need something good to come in our future. Egypt will save us. And then the prophet Isaiah comes and he speaks these words. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadows of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. He says, you're going to them because you think you'll have life. You're not going to get salvation. You're going to get shame. They are not in a position to save you. Verse 12, he says, therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, budging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a pottery vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments, not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of a cistern. He says, you think they're going to be a protective wall but it's going to collapse in on you and it's going to shatter so completely there won't even be enough to scoop up some water. What you're putting your hope in will not save you. And then you get the famous verse of verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You said, no, we'll flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. 
Herein lies the benefit of despair. You have to look and say, what am I hoping in to give me life? For them, their hope was in Egypt. Egypt will save us. And he says, hey, their horses aren't faster than Assyrian horses. Their strength is not strong enough to resist what's coming. He doesn't shame them for having a desire to be saved. He doesn't shame them for having hope. He shames them for putting their hope in the wrong strategy. Do you see it? And so what do they need to do? They have to say, this strategy will not lead to success. I have to kill this hope. And only in doing that, abandoning this savior, am I opening up my possibility to entertain a real savior. And God says, it's in returning and rest, you'll have your strength. It's in quietness and trust. And he says, I'm waiting on you to wait on me. They can't save you. I can. I need you to turn to me. That's the word repent. Repent is I got a way of thinking. I got a way of feeling. I got a way of living that I think will lead me to life. And he says, you have to abandon that strategy, lose hope in that. But only when we lose hope in insufficient saviors does that open us up to dependence upon the right savior. It's when we lose our confidence in failing strategies, we open up the possibility to a successful strategy. Do you see it? Uh, so I've been watching many documentaries on World War II right now. I don't know why. Something men do. I'm also reading a book on the Roman Empire, okay? Because I like it. <laughs> and what happens is Winston Churchill takes over. Right away, Lord Halifax is, is going off in secret and trying to negotiate with Hitler. How can we stave off destruction? Maybe Hitler will make a deal with us. Maybe Hitler will take care of us. Maybe we can work out a deal where he'll leave us alone. And one of Winston Churchill's first acts was, hey, this hope that Hitler will care for us, I have to kill this. You have to stop believing that'll save you. You have to abandon all hope and this strategy. You think this will give you life? It will make you a slave. No, we have to kill this. And only then did the people of England realize we have to stiffen our resolve to fight. Even though this looks hopeless, this will actually rescue us. I remember when I injured my back. I've told you many stories about uh, how I had pretty catastrophic back injury years ago. And the first time I injured my back, I had a doctor that just sent me tons of drugs. And so after a while, I started researching these drugs and realized none of them promoted healing. They just numbed pain. I was like, well, well, pain is an indicator and motivator to seek a solution that something's broken. You're, you're not healing what's broken. You're just numbing the pain. Is there something I can do to heal what's broken? And I remember calling and saying, is there some exercises I can do, some physical therapy? And uh, they sent me more drugs. And, and I grew up with a doctor that loved me. Like, uh, we went to his wedding. Like, my doctor when I was a kid loved me. So this was the first time for me. I'm like, I don't think this doctor cares. He is not trying to help me. He's just trying to numb the pain while I stay broken. I, I can't call you anymore. I'm deleting your number. I don't trust you. Your strategy will not heal me. I want healing. I want restoration. What I want is good. That's a good hope. But, but the strategy I'm hoping in is an insufficient savior. Can't trust you. And so only when I abandon that hope, I gotta stop calling this guy. There's no solutions with this man. Did I go, well, what do I do? And I called this other doctor and I said, what do I do? And I remember he said, drop 40 pounds, eat salmon, 
get in shape, do planks. I'm like, what? I thought you were just going to give me better drugs. He's like, no, we're going to get you in shape. And yes, there'll also be some medical interventions, but we're going to get you also some physical therapy. And he put me on this whole different track and I was able to walk again and move and carry my kids and stand up here and do all kinds of things I really like. And so I had to abandon hope in order to get a real hope. I had to kill this hope to find a solid one. Do you see it? And for some of us, if we're honest, it, it's fascinating. If you look at revival in history, when, when does God really move in power in, in a person's life, in a people's life, in a nation's life? It always begins in repentance. Not resolved to do better, but the realizing what I was believing in is a lie. I don't want to carry this anymore. It's fascinating. Later in Isaiah, he says that to them. What you're holding in your right hand is a lie. They had little idol gods, just like Egypt. And he said, you're hoping for something that cannot save to save you. You have to let go if you're going to live. It's echoed in Jesus' statements later, right? If you want to save your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. Sounds crazy. But you go, he's not shaming you for wanting to live. He's not shaming you for wanting life. He's not shaming you for wanting some good in your future. He's saying you're trying to get it by seeking in that context money, wealth, power, fame, sex. You're trying to find these things that that if I get the right combination of them, I'll have life. And he says these things aren't life. These functional saviors will not save you. They're good gifts, but bad gods. And so you have to stop looking to them to give what they cannot give. And once you abandon that strategy, it'll feel like death, but that's where all my meaning and significance is found. Once you die to that, there's something about Christianity where life begins in tombs. And you go, oh, when I killed that, that's when I truly lived. When I lost my life, I found it. And what I once considered my glory I count as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my King. And some of us, what you're holding in your right hand is a lie. And it's not wrong to want joy and happiness and contentment, but the prophet Jeremiah said this, be appalled, O heavens, be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Notice he doesn't shame them for having a thirst and wanting it to be slaked. He shames them for forsaking the living water and going to a broken cistern. And so for many of us, you have to kill your hope in the thing you thought would give you life. The problem is, and I love the way Paul said it to the Romans, he said, what are the fruits you were getting at that time, from the things of which you're now ashamed, those things ended in death. He's calling Christians. He's like, remember the things that you thought would give you life. He says, what benefit did you get from those things you're now ashamed of? He said, you guys were locked up in some things you thought would save you. What benefit did you get from them? Evaluate that strategy to get life. He said, they were leading you to death. And so as I thought about that, what are the idols? What are the false hopes? What are the ages for many of us? There are things we go to we thought would give us life. And for many of us, you don't necessarily think it that way. What would be my functional savior today? 
You just go home and go, I am so stressed. I am so exhausted. I am so, I just can't wait for a drink. And I'm not saying alcohol is wrong, but for some of us, it is a source of comfort in life. And you go, what benefit did you get from it? And you go, a lot. Relaxation, it's fun, tastes great. There's a lot of benefits. And yet, if, if you move from, from drinking alcohol recreationally to using it as a source of comfort, many of us love people dearly who did that, and it became a, a, a rescue from bad feelings, a way to obliterate negative thoughts. It became a functional savior that didn't set you free. It, it, it ensnared you. And, and in that moment, you go, what benefit are you getting from this savior? It's costing you more than you want to pay. And if you look at the net, it's too much. Well, for some people, it's, it's not a substance, it's not a pill, it's not a drug, it's not a drink, it's, it's a pornography or sex. You look statistically, and it's rampant in our culture. We don't like to talk about it. You're not supposed to say it out here. You're supposed to get online and look at it. But the idea is, for many of us, we go to that. Why? Yes, because it's interesting, but also because it's a source of, of comfort, a stress relief, same sort of thing, to, to, to look at porn, to look at some of these different images online, that sort of thing, and you go, okay, I'm going to this for, for comfort, relief, to get me out of negative feelings, out of negative thoughts. I go to this, and you go, so what benefit is there? Several. It's fun. Naked people look interesting. And you go, okay. But what does it cost you? I just, uh, the ability to hold on conversations, moral authority, eye contact, and any impulse to develop a healthy relationship where I can enjoy sex with an actual human being that also cares about my soul. When you put it that way, and you net it out, it's a net loss. And look, I don't, I'm not trying to shame anybody. The goal of this sermon is not to shame you. The goal is just hold your nose because here goes the cold water. And just to show you, some of us, our functional saviors, are taking more than they're giving. We're running to Egypt, and he's like, their horses aren't fast enough. We're going, but Ben, you don't understand how stressful my life is. I got to take the edge off. Yeah, but that wall is going to fall in on you. Where does recovery ministry begin? Alcoholics Anonymous. Does it come with the promise to do better? No. Where does it start? We admitted that we were powerless and our life was unmanageable and our current strategies were not working. What's the pathway that has led so many people to sobriety and quality of life? It begins in despair. It begins in, this is unmanageable. I'm powerless to fix it. This will never lead to life. It begins on the ash heap, which is a great place to start. That's where the Christian message always starts. It starts with, you can't fix you. You can't save you. There's no hope. The standard's too high. You don't have the energy. You don't have the impulse. You can't get yourself where you want to go. I'm despairing, yes. Now look at the one who can save. That's the gospel. But the minute we stop looking to Good gifts to be bad gods is the minute we look up and go, wait, is there another option? And God says, yeah, I've been waiting patiently to save you. He's like, Egypt can't. They can't get it together. At that point in history, Egypt had lost a significant amount of its influence. He's like, I wouldn't lean on them. He said, but you want to trust me? Well, what's great is I don't have time to tell you the whole story. Jerusalem gets surrounded. And so you can't get to Egypt if you want to. 
But Hezekiah chooses to take Isaiah's advice and seek the Lord. And God's like, watch this. I'm going to send a rumor to the king. He's gone. And he gets a rumor and goes back home. He thinks he's being attacked back home. So he shows up there to take care of that and ends up getting murdered. <laughs> and it's wild because you actually have extra biblical sources in pottery of him kind of claiming all his victories. I crushed this nation. I smashed this nation. I destroyed this nation. I surrounded Jerusalem. And he's trying to spin it as a victory. And you're like, you lost, bro. You lost. God saved him the way God wanted to do it. And what did it require? It required hopelessness, despair, quitting. I am quitting on you, false savior, because that opens me up to a real savior. I'm giving up hope in you, and I'm taking up hope in you. Only when we lose hope in the wrong thing do we open ourselves up for the possibility of a solid hope in the true thing. Do you see it? So I'm not trying to get you to give up hope in life. I'm just trying to get you to put it in the right place. See it? Uh, I like the word false hope. It's kind of weird, false hope. Because you go, it, it betrays that there's two elements of hope in our Christian, in our uh, English language. There's the subjective aspect and the objective aspect. The subjective aspect of hope is, is I want something good in the future. I, I hope we get to eat later. I, I hope we get to see her. It, 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 we're talking about our emotional uh, content, right? But there's also an objective element. Are there reasons to believe good is coming? You hear it in statements like, hope has arrived. What does that mean? If you were in trouble and someone came to save you, hope has arrived. You mean an objective person who's big enough to take out your problem just showed up. So hope is a subjective belief that good is coming based on some solid objective reasons. If, if you uh, just have hope, but no solid basis for reasons, uh, you got about half a hope. Wish is a better word, right? Uh, some of you been dating a guy and, and every evidence is it's not getting better. And you go, well, I hope someday he will pay the bills and whatever. You go, well, all right, well, the past is the best predictor of the future. Uh, how's that working for you? Well, he never has. And then, oh, okay, all right. So, so what you have is a wish. You wish he was going to get you to that desired destination, but you have no objective facts. They give you basis for hope because hope is a subjective sense of confidence built on an objective reality. And I'm telling you, we're looking for hope in places where we can't find it. And the Christian message is, is abandon hope and replace it. And you go, well, what gives me any confidence that hope in Jesus is a good outcome? Well, he said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's in death, you find life. You know, that sounds crazy. He's like, all right, let me show you. And he goes to the cross and objectively dies on that cross and objectively gets buried in a tomb and then objectively rolls that stone away, then objectively walks out and then objectively says, let me show up to 500 people. Touch this wound. Can I eat some of that fish? Let me talk to you. Let me talk to everybody to show you I'm actually really here. I didn't just resurrect in your thoughts and prayers. I resurrected in reality. Death is not the end for me. It's not the end for you. And I'm coming back for you. And he says, I want you to put your subjective hope in an objective reality. I beat death and use death as an instrument to life. And I'll do it for you. So abandon hope. 
That doesn't mean don't use money. That doesn't mean don't have a relationship. It doesn't mean don't enjoy sex within the confines that God used it for human flourishing. What I'm saying is you don't look to these things to give you the source that only God can be. He says, it's in quietness and rest you'll find hope. It's in me. It's in me. You put your hope in me and you will find life. Here's the interesting thing, and I'll close here. Uh, I had a friend years ago come to the ministry I was leading, and he, he preached about Ephesians, the Ephesians, not the book of Ephesians, but the people, the Ephesians, and how they got a letter in the book of Revelation. So the people who lived in Ephesus get a letter in the book of Revelation. You can read it in Revelation 2. And God celebrates them as a church for certain things they're doing well. But then he looks at him, he says, but I have this against you. He's like, we got something we got to talk about. It says, you've abandoned love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did first. And he goes, you guys are doing some good things, but, but you've forgotten your first love. You've started to go some directions that are not going to give you life. So repent, change your way of thinking, your way of feeling, and your way of living. Just move to a different path. Abandon this strategy and take up a different one. And what is this one? Doing the work you did at first. Go back to the original path. And you go, well, what was that? Well, the book of Acts tells us the story of how the gospel came to Ephesus. And I won't read the whole story, but in Acts 19.18, as the gospel of Jesus Christ came for us, died on the cross for our sin, was buried and rose as, it, as it's preached to them. It says in verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them inside of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's interesting about that is Paul didn't ask him to do that. He just told him about the sufficiency of Jesus, that he's mighty to save. But when the Ephesians believed that, they realized we've been looking at this other stuff to try to manipulate the world, manipulate, and, and, and we ended up getting into some dark things to try to find comfort and security in life. And we don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to go to this anymore. So they said, get rid of him. And before I start on this new journey, let me burn the bridge to that old one. Let me get rid of these things. I'm killing my hope in false saviors so I can go walk with the good one. Uh, when I was in high school, we had this Bible study with our friends and it was really beautiful. The time we would spend praying for each other, praying for our school. And then a couple of the guys just quit coming and then we see them at school and they'd gotten into some, some pretty dark things. And I remember I had a friend once just show up at my house one night, it was a weeknight, just showed up and knocked on my door at my house. I'm like, what are you doing, man? And he said, man, I just read this verse. And he walked up with Matthew open where Jesus says, if a brother sin is in sin, go to him. And he was like, man, we didn't do this. These guys have gotten locked up in some things and we didn't even care enough to go say something to them. He's like, I think we're supposed to go talk to him. 
And I was like, yeah, man, all right. You know, and I'm like, let me pray on that. He's like, no, like, let's go right now. I'm like, you want to go like right now? Yeah, why not? There's no time reference, let's go. I'm like, okay, okay, let's go. And I remember we showed up at the first guy's house and we're all like charged up. And then we get to his house and I'm like super nervous. Like, what are we doing? Like, this is crazy. Finally, we walk up to the door and he knocks on the door, boom, 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 boom. And we see someone starting to come to the door and then he goes, okay, say something. I was like, wait, what? I mean, literally, dude, just like, whoop, swim moves me. I'm like, what are you? Hey, um, hello. And brother's looking at me, not saying a word. And I said, oh, probably wondering why we're here. Uh, Well, Mark just came to my house just like this. And he opened this passage and I just took it and, and I read it. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he goes, hang on a second. He shut the door, walked in and he came out, had his jacket on, whatever. And he looked at me and said, what took you so long? And I said, I'm sorry. And he said, let's go get Kevin. <laughs> okay. So we just drove to the other guy's house and they walked up and marched the door and they did the same thing. They were like, get him, Ben. Tell him to do the thing you were. I'm like, God. <laughs> so I read him the same thing and he's, hang on a second, shuts the door and he comes back with this box of all kinds of stuff he had gotten into. And he said, I need this out of my life and I need you to take it. We didn't tell him to do that. He just knew I had been going to find life and comfort and in places that were taken more than they were given. And you're offering me another road. I'm abandoning hope in this strategy. I want this one, but you gotta, you gotta take this. And we did, threw, threw it away for him. And it's just amazing how What's going to begin being a people who call on heaven? What's, what's the, the roots of revival are always repentance. I'm just bringing out the dark and saying, I don't want it anymore. Say, what I'm holding in my right hand is a lie. This, this, this is maybe a good gift, but I've made it into a bad God. I don't want to do that anymore. What's going to cause you to do that? I love it that Jesus or the Lord in Isaiah ends with, I wait to be gracious to you. What's going to give us hope in, in, in turning to him? One is the objective reality that he can give you hope beyond the grave. He's where comfort and consolation is found. And two is that he wants you to come. He's not shaming you. He didn't have his arms folded. One of my favorite moments in Jesus' ministry is he's talking to a group of what the scripture just says is sinners. He's talking to some sinners. And the religious people show up and are mad at him for talking to them. You're not even supposed to talk to them. And so Jesus, rather than saying, I talk to whoever I want, you don't know me. Rather than do that, Jesus is like, let me tell you a story. And he says, uh, there's a lady who lost a coin. She ripped up the whole house that she found. There's a guy who lost a sheep and he searched every hill till he found it. 
There's a dad whose son went off to a distant country and wrecked his life. And as soon as the son turned, the dad came running to get his boy. And that was Jesus just saying, let me tell you why I'm talking to the sinner. Let me tell you why I'm here. I'm not here to shame anybody. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I am here to open them up. What you're looking to save you will not save you, but I have come to be the savior you need. And yes, I am sufficient to save. There's save. There's objective reality that proves it. And I got a heart that longs for you to come. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. You don't come to a judgmental God today. You come to a loving father. You don't come to somebody that's going to shame you for the evil you've done. He's going to celebrate that a child's coming home. That's how repentance works. And so I don't know where you are in today. If, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, that's what we sell around here. If you go, what's y'all's angle? That's what we're selling. Jesus. It's the hope of the world. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That God so loved the world that he sent his son that when you believe in him, you will not perish, but have life. He's the source of our true hope, a savior who beat death and calls us home. And for those of us who are believers, maybe some of you, and I'm not saying this is all of you, but maybe you find yourself where the Ephesians were. If you go, you know what? I, uh, I've done some good things, but I've lost a bit of my first love. And I just need to get back where I was, where there's some things I've been looking at to be functional saviors that I just don't want to put hope in anymore. And the good news is we have a God who waits for us. And the good news is that he brings hope, not just to his wayward people, but then through us to the world. President Lincoln, many years ago in 1863, called the nation to pray. And in his address, he said, it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all of history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.